From the Carrie M. McGuire Center for Ethics and Public Responsibility at SMU, this is Sound Ethics, a podcast supporting scholars of ethics with particular regard for those at SMU, highlighting important questions of morality and philosophy. Our students today have more knowledge available to them than can possibly be absorbed. The pace of our environment requires instantaneous reactions to complex questions, yet the ethical dilemmas are no less complex. Struggling through that complexity is central to understanding its implications for our society and culture. This series and these discussions bring together some of the leading ethicists in the country to consider the place of ethics in the university today and how we can best equip students to deal with those ethical complexities. Our program, Should Ethics Be Taught? Ethics in the Secular Universities, with two of our distinguished professors and is the third conversation in this series. Rita Kirk and Robert Howell will discuss potential dilemmas in teaching ethics, such as whether or not we're pushing students towards or away from religious beliefs by doing so, as well as how ethics education can be brought to the center of the curriculum. Dr. Rita Kirk is the William F. May Endowed Director of the McGuire Ethics Center and a distinguished professor in corporate communications and public affairs and co-editor of the book, Ethics at the Heart of Higher Education. Dr. Robert Howell is a Dedman Family Distinguished Professor and is the chair of the Department of Philosophy. Robert is author of the recent paper and chapter, Should Ethics Be Taught? Ethics in the Secular University. Rita, Robert, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is really such an interesting book, and I hope that if you haven't had an opportunity to get it, that you'll consider it is called Ethics at the Heart of Higher Education. It's available on Amazon and includes chapters from each of the current and former center directors and each of our endowed uh, ethics professors at SMU, both current and former. Um, Our philosophy department is well represented with Robert Howell, who you'll hear from today, as well as our partners at UT Southwestern Medical Center. But it's an interesting and timely discussion about the role of ethics in the university. Robert's chapter is particularly compelling because it forces us to deal with some issues that the university deals with at almost every turn, and that is where ethics lies in the curriculum. Robert, we're going to start talking about your chapter today where you talk about the secular university's dilemma, Um, and that's a really interesting phrase. Can you tell us just a little about that, that meaning? Yeah, so what I have in mind by that is that um, I think that there are some people who feel like ethics is just exclusively within the purview of religion or, um, you know, some sort of religious tradition. And while I certainly think that that is a part of ethics, um, it's, you know, a question whether or not the secular university doesn't necessarily want to say, look, we are of a specific religious tradition and this is what we're teaching our students, can a secular university teach ethics if it's not going to, you know, do that? Um, on the one hand, it looks like if it is committing to a particular religious tradition, then it's actually sort of foregoing some of its obligations as a secular university to embrace multiple traditions and to be able to talk across those multiple traditions. On the other hand, if it doesn't embrace such a tradition, you might wonder, does it actually have the sort of backing for its ethical teaching that you would hope that it had. And so I think a lot of universities find themselves kind of caught between a rock and a hard place where they want to teach ethics, but 
they don't necessarily always know how to do it in such a way that avoids committing them to something that they don't want to be committed to explicitly. It's interesting because before anybody gets alarmed, you make a very clear point that we're really not cutting God out of students' lives. It's important to note, as you claim, that in this, this is a quotation from you, in an ever-shrinking world, we are home to a people of diverse cultures and religions. And inevitably, the question will arise of what we should do to, with, or for one another. Um, so when you talk about that, how important is it that we learn how to do ethical thinking while acknowledging that people come from different faiths, religious backgrounds, and heritages? I think that that's actually one of the most important things about uh, teaching students uh, how to think ethically and learning how to think ethically ourselves is part of that is learning to reach back to principles that we can share and we can kind of come into common ground between multiple traditions. Um, despite our diversity, there's oftentimes an enormous amount of unity uh, in some of our more basic beliefs. Uh, it's actually pretty rare to find people who are outside the pale. Uh, and certainly across multiple spiritual traditions, you can find a lot of commitments that are in common that allow us to talk past our differences. And so I certainly don't want to cut religion out of the picture, but I think that there are times when actually it can become sort of more busying and more distracting if it's going to call attention to our differences as opposed to calling attention to the ways in which we can act together. Yeah, making good decisions is not an easy thing, right? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so when we think about um, 18 to 22-year-olds, the, the typical college-age students, although it certainly extends to even non-traditional students, um, you talk about it's, it's not just good enough that we give a set of rules. But it's important that people learn how to think. What a strange and unusual concept for a university to be advancing. Can you talk about what is your process for helping students learn how to think? Well, I think that one of the things that we do when we teach ethics and philosophy in a way is we tend to start with the puzzles and the problems first, as opposed to starting with the principles first. Uh, so you start with a puzzle that's going to elicit some sort of uh, conflicting emotions and conflicting intuitions among students. Um, you know, maybe it's about, you know, end-of-life care for a patient. Maybe it's about abortion. It's a, maybe it's a hot topic that people, you know, feel a lot of passion about. And then you try to elicit the reasons why they have the passions that they do and get them talking. And those students begin to see that actually it is possible to talk about these things as opposed to just emote about them. Um, and that they don't go straight to principles of the sort like, you know, do not perform abortions at this point, or do, you know, do allow abortions at this point, or do not, you know, terminate life at this point. Um, but they, typically, they reach beyond that to talk about some things that might serve as reasons for that. And so by presenting them with problems and then sort of eliciting the responses, we hope to, and then sort of guiding them into which of those responses work, which of those responses don't seem to work, what are the sort of criticisms to which they might be subject, those sorts of processes begin to cause the students to reflect upon the fact that they have the wherewithal to actually engage in critical thinking about ethical matters, uh, which is something that a lot of times I think they don't necessarily know how to begin to do. Um, you know, so we want to get them away from, you know, sort of the emotional connection they've had to their original principles that they start with 
and begin to dig a little bit deeper to be able to interact with one another and articulate some of the points of difference and some of the ways in which they might be able to transcend the you, it seems to me that you really elevate the study of ethics in your chapter when you argue that students need to learn how to reason their way through all sorts of problems. And so it's this reasoning process that you're trying to teach them. Am I understanding that correctly? That's right. Um, that's right. I mean, you know, one of the things that uh, is one of the oldest lessons that we have in philosophy comes from Plato's Euthyphro. And one of the sort of oldest points is, is that there is really no way to sort of list all of the different dilemmas that we're going to face or to list all the different puzzles that we're going to encounter in our lives. Uh, and that to come up with a sort of a, you know, definition of, you know, here's what's the right thing to do and here's what's the wrong thing to do, that's found to be inexhaustive because of the fact that we're just going to have all sorts of novel situations that we encounter that we've never anticipated encountering. And so that's why teaching students how to reason with new issues and novel circumstances is much more important, I think, than teaching them how to address circumstances they've already sort of seen and passed judgment on. Wow. That's a lot for students to process, right? Do you have any resistance to that from students that maybe don't want to think so clearly about how they came to these conclusions? Well, you do have students who, um, a lot of times they'll tell you, I just don't think that way, you know? And that's, you know, one of our jobs, uh, all of our jobs is, you know, because I'm sure we get this across many disciplines, is to explain that this is something you can learn. You don't start off thinking this way or that way. You actually learn how to think. And getting students to, you know, oftentimes you get students who are really good at, you know, certain sorts of black and white, you know, issues, um, they may be extraordinarily complicated issues, like those that you confront in engineering or something like that, but they have clear and crisp answers, and you can tell whether or not you've got the right answer by whether or not the rocket lifts off or doesn't. And, you know, that's pretty, that's comforting in a way to know that there's those sorts of parts of reality that are going to smack you in the head if you don't actually get them right. Um, getting students to be comfortable with issues that, you know, aren't like that, that require you know, a little bit more abstraction that will require, you know, separating yourself a little bit from, you know, your tradition uh, and from some of your natural inclinations. That takes some practice. Um, some students take to it like fish to water and feel it incredibly liberating as a way to sort of finally get to ask the questions that they were told all their lives. This is because mama said or because daddy said or because of religion or whatever. There's certain students who are absolutely flourish in an environment which asks that next question. Um, but some students don't. And the key thing is, I think, to sort of erect a, a scenario of mutual respect and um, where people feel comfortable doing it. It's a place where people can feel endangered. And I think that making people understand their beliefs, you know, deserve a hearing and that they deserve to be articulated. Uh, even if they're in the minority, is something that's really important. And difficult, right? To, very difficult. Um, to find that safe space on campus so that we can discuss ideas and discuss them freely. You know, it reminds me, when you and I were on the curriculum committee this time, and we were advocating, as many people were, um, many of whom um, are on this conference call with us today, um, 
we were advocating for the teaching of ethics and ethics education throughout the curriculum, both from a philosophical perspective as well as from just a, a foundational perspective of understanding what it is that they believe and using those uh, thoughts as a guideline to their future. But that was met, and you talk about this in your book chapter, with some alarm on the part of the faculty. Can you kind of walk through the alarm it causes when a faculty agrees to teach ethics? Well, you know, when people hear they're going to teach ethics or when they hear that somebody's going to be teaching ethics in the university, they think that people are going to be setting, standing behind them with a rod telling them, yes, you should do this or no, you shouldn't do that or something like that. Um, and, you know, frankly, I think that there is a place for, you know, teaching, you know, some fundamental ethical principles. I mean, I think that, you know, if we don't start off with an understanding of the fact that we can't just lie to one another, we're not going to get very far. But um, it's... Teaching ethics isn't about sort of, you know, standing behind somebody with a rod and then teaching them the right way to do things or the wrong way to do things according to some tradition or other. I think it's the very process of teaching people how to talk through religious religious and ethical disagreements is a way that we can begin to teach ethics in such a way that doesn't sort of presuppose what I think some people find to be a really negative stereotype which is that, you know, we're going to be, so be imposing certain sorts of cultural baggage or um, particular points of view on our students. When I think that, you know, a good ethical discussion is one where it actually considers uh, the various sorts of points of view and the ones that, you know, might not be um, sort of ones that are prevalent in our culture. And so I think that, you know, I tend to think that there is, uh, there can be a somewhat harmful cultural relativism it can sometimes occur within the university because we're so aware of the fact that we're, there are huge differences between ourselves and others and between peoples that um, it begins to be, you know, extremely suspect to talk in such a way as though we don't have those differences. And I think that what's important is to recognize that ethics doesn't pretend to do that. Uh, ethics talks to the differences. Yeah, one of my favorite phrases that I have read is that students often come to the university knowing what to do, and they spend four years at the university figuring out why they do it. Um, That's the goal. I hope so. Uh, yeah, but you're right. I mean, there are some students who um, are very resistant to moving in that direction. But I think that that's, you know... That's a lot of the difference between high school and college, really, as you know, I mean, is, is in high school, they're kind of drilled with information. Uh, it's really fairly rare that they, you know, look to kind of see around the corners of that information and figure out how exactly, you know, to take that information with them forward and to, and to critically examine it in such a way that they actually own it. Um, you know, they, they, they have it, but they kind of don't own it. And the way to own information and the way to own knowledge, I think, is to actually interact with it in this sort of more, you know, uh, expansive manner. You were the 2013 McGuire Center Public Scholar, and you referenced the, uh, this wonderful phrase. Those of you that have not uh, had an opportunity to hear it, we have posted that on our website at McGuire Ethics. Um, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about this wonderful idea that you have that's called uh, Google Morals. Yeah, so that um, was a sort of thought experiment that I was uh, intrigued by. And the idea was, is uh, suppose that in addition to Google Maps, which allows you to kind of consult your phone or your watch or what have you to determine how to get from place to place, 
um, that you may not have known how to get to and from before. Suppose that in addition, there was an app called Google Morals, where it gave you, uh, as it were, sort of an ethical roadmap for every particular question that you might ask. And so, you know, let's suppose that you were confronted with a dilemma about whether or not to tell somebody a white lie in order to prevent the feelings from being heard. Or you had, maybe you were even focusing on a much more weighty decision, uh, perhaps an end-of-life decision for a relative or something like that. Well, suppose that you could actually just enter that into your your phone and say, you know, should I, you know, terminate life at this point? Or should, you know, life be, you know, preserved no matter what? Or should I tell the white lie? Um, they're even supposing that you could actually get an app like this um, and that it would give you the right answers. Um, I have the intuition that there's something problematic about using an app like this to constantly figure out how to negotiate your way around the ethical conundrum that we're going to face. Um, and one of my, what I like to do is I like to kind of think about different ways in which this might be problematic, but probably where I land is to say that in a way, using such an app um, redirects decision-making sort of around our own character. Our own character doesn't wind up playing a role in the actual fleshing out and deciding upon, upon those moral values. And as such, the decisions that we make don't wind up redounding to our virtue. And part of the job of an individual, and I think this is true no matter who you are, is to develop a sort of intellectual virtue and moral virtue. And if you basically outsource your ethical decision-making to an app, or it doesn't have to be an app, it can be, you know, your Uncle Joe. Um, if you outsource your decision-making, in some sense, you're actually giving up on part of your job as a human being, which is to negotiate and to wrestle with these sorts of dilemmas yourself and to cultivate virtue in the face of these sorts of difficult decisions. It is kind of interesting, isn't it, that we turn to Google for so many things in our lives. If we have a headache, we turn to Google. If we, um, you know, if for any information about um, life in general, we turn to Google to get the, the opinions of that. Um, do you have students who still try to do that in your classes? They try to look up the right answer in order to appear um, more knowledgeable in front of a philosophy professor? I think that they know pretty quickly that that's not going to cut a lot of mustard in my class anyway. Um, but you, 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 I, I think that probably more worrisome is there's a little bit of a mission creep in technology that sometimes allows technology to make decisions for us when we don't really realize those decisions are being made. And so one of my interests as sort of a philosopher of technology is to look at the various ways in which we might be sort of um, outsourcing some of our um, jobs as humans, as it were, to computers when we shouldn't be. So it's probably not going to come in the form of actually Googling, what should I do? I haven't noticed the student doing that, and I hope that they don't. But nevertheless, they may be using a device, so they may be actually relying upon um, technology that has already answered certain questions for them. And getting them to ask those questions in such a way that they don't sort of wind up implicitly outsourcing their agency to you know, computers, it strikes me as something that, uh, we're, that it's going to be something that we face, I think, more and more as artificial intelligence becomes more pervasive, all pervasive and more seamless. 
I'm glad you're talking about that because one of the concerns that many people had would, was that we weren't going to be really interdisciplinary in our approach to ethics, which is just the opposite of what we were. And I'm going to explore that in a couple of ways with you. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the program in cybersecurity here at SMU, which is a very prestigious program. Um, they actually came to the ethicist at this university saying, you know, we're teaching students how to do all of these things. Are we also teaching them what to, how to think about it and to assess their uh, moral objectives in the process of using that? You've developed a whole course around uh, cybersecurity and the issues that are currently uh, happening. Can you tell us about that course and how those interactions have fed and sustained uh, the kind of model that we want at the university? Well, so it started off uh, with actually a grant from you guys, which uh, was uh, very much appreciated and really helped us get our feet underneath us um, to help kind of develop a technology society and value class where, you know, I must admit that part of the initial uh, attraction was sort of self-serving, namely to make philosophy sexy to people who, you know, don't necessarily see that philosophy answers questions that they might encounter in their day-to-day lives. And so by bringing philosophy to technology and some of the sort of emerging issues that come with technology, I was hoping to kind of show off philosophy a little bit. Um, one of the things that happened was is that the interest in this exploded. And through learning from my students and learning from other professors around the campus, I realized that this is an entire sort of industry that SMU needs to be uh, in the middle of. And so um, this particular course, uh, right now, I believe we teach um, six sections of 35 students apiece every semester, um, which is, I believe, our most popular class in philosophy. And um, I'm looking to make connections across the university with people who are interested in teaching, you know, outside of the philosophy department and in, in, in engineering schools and law school and things like this. But uh, we cover topics such as, you know, what is the nature of privacy? Why should we care about privacy? Um, that's an interesting issue that, for example, our students and actually myself have a really hard time thinking about because I think we all have a sense in which we're sort of letting our information flow out the door, you know, through massive fire hose, but we really don't know what the consequences of letting that information be possessed by massive companies or the government might be. So what is the value of privacy? Um, what are the prospects of artificial intelligence? And what sorts of things should we do to make sure that artificial intelligence winds up being an artificial intelligence serves humanity rather than an artificial intelligence that could stand to supplant humanity or could pervert? humanity in some important way. Um, other issues, you know, so the ethics of cybersecurity are closely related to privacy ethics. Uh, and in general, there's a sort of a, a lock that has to be picked between privacy and security. Those are sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, and figuring out how to negotiate those things and how to quantify the various values that are at stake uh, are extremely important. Since actually developing that class, uh, I've gotten together with Sukunera uh, Engineering uh, and some colleagues in law and data science, and have begun to look at different ways in which we can bring our own expertise to bear, uh, pull me out of the philosophy mold and begin to see, you know, among other things, how things are actually working on the ground. Because, you know, if philosophers talk about this stuff without talking to engineers, um, 
we're going to miss all the important problems before they occur. Uh, and I think if engineers don't talk to philosophers, they're not going to get in the habit of asking the sort of questions that they need to ask before the horse has already left the barn. So um, I do think that actually interdisciplinarity is one of the most important things in ethics um, and certainly in an area like technology. Over the last five years, the McGuire Ethics Center has spent about half a million dollars investing in teaching, uh, specifically to help teachers in their own disciplines figure out how to talk about ethical issues, um, not as a philosopher as you would, but to inform the dilemmas that they're going to face. And you've been very instrumental in helping us with that education. We often do uh, retreats at Taos uh, campus here so that those people that are working in their disciplines um, can come together and then talk to folks in philosophy about, well, how might I approach this better or uh, work? Can you, can you talk about what the process is of helping professors in disciplines where they may not have been really trained as ethicists learn how to talk about ethics in their particular discipline? Some of it, I think, is just getting people to feel comfortable asking those questions. Um, you know, we're all a little bit shy to step outside of our areas of expertise, um, and there's a lot of vulnerability that actually goes with, you know, going outside of what you were taught as a graduate student to teach. Um, and so I think a lot of what is a great benefit in those retreats and the various things that the McGuire Center sets up is that they allow people to begin to see other ways that people teach, other ways that people ask questions, and that it's okay to actually ask the question, what sorts of reasons would you give for saying this is the right thing to do? And what sorts of reasons would you give for saying this is the right thing to do? And, you know, I think it's probably not the right thing to do to, you know, try to, in fact, I know it's not the right thing to do, to try to get everybody to teach like a philosopher, because that's not, that, that would be forsaking all the, you know, authority and, and intelligence that, other people bring to bear. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I think teaching people a little bit about some of the structure that you can sort of hang the question on, a little bit some of the ways in which these conversations go, ways in which you know a classroom works when you're discussing ethical questions, just showing people that, I think actually um, makes, uh, in my experience is it actually makes a lot of people feel sort of more liberated in the classroom to discuss some things they wouldn't otherwise discuss. And I know that I've certainly learned um, probably more from the people who have come to discuss their particular projects than they've learned from me, just because, you know, it's amazing how many questions are out there that, you know, almost no single discipline can possibly pull underneath its coattail. So it's, um, I think that's been a fantastic effort on behalf of McGuire's and I think that, uh, you know, it's a real asset to the university to actually have a place where people from across different disciplines can begin to talk to each other about ways of expertise ethics. Yeah. So um, we have often taught and uh, or talked about this in our curriculum uh, committee meetings about the interdisciplinary nature of ethics from the arts, which are just robust with opportunities for discussing people's ethical dilemmas and for actors finding and exploring uh, ethical dilemmas for people that are very much unlike them as individuals. So there's a variety of ways of coming to ethics. And I think that's one of the things that you've been such a champion for and has put our philosophy department kind of dead center of the curriculum here at SMU. I know that there are other universities where uh, in, in a period of budget cuts, they're chopping left and right and philosophy departments have fallen 
prey to that in the last few years. Um, can you talk a little bit about why our philosophy department seems to be going just the opposite way and becoming more integral to what we do and more robust? Well, I think that what's really, I mean, I, well, I think that the philosophy department owes a lot to the colleagues in other disciplines who I think understand the value of philosophy. I think that that's something that SMU, uh, you know, SMU, I think in general, not just with philosophy, looks after their own and knows where the values are in the university and isn't going to let places of value go unrewarded or unappreciated. So, you know, I have to say that I have a lot to do, a lot to thank from my colleagues in the various other disciplines. But I think one of the things that's really important to be able to do is to be able to articulate what one's value is. And part of being able to do that means that you've got to get out of your silo and begin talking to other people uh, in ways that actually address the sorts of concerns or questions that they have. Um, so, you know, the technology ethics program is one example of something that is a fairly easy to articulate need that people see and understand almost from wherever they come from, that they recognize, look, yeah, we're encountering a whole bunch of new problems that we don't even know how to think about. And, you know, what better place, you know, than a philosophy department to begin to actually hash through something. But also just, you know, recognizing, I think that philosophy should be a big tent. Um, you know, there's a tendency to over-professionalize to the point where, you know, you just do your little thing that you were taught to do by your advisor in graduate school. And, you know, that's a way to make a certain sort of career. But, you know, if you don't wind up talking across the aisle and talking through the various disciplines, um, nobody's going to know what you're doing, uh, for one thing, which is sort of unrewarding. But, you know, it, at the worst, yeah, people could decide that they don't think that what you're doing is worth doing because you haven't done a very good job of articulating what it is. So I think having the public-facing side to uh, not just philosophy, but really any discipline, but I think philosophers need to get better at having the public-facing side. Uh, I think that's where we started, and that's where we should come back. Um, and making sure that our students stay excited as well, as opposed to just beating them into a mold that we you know, think they should be in. Um, letting them sort of drive the way with their interests. Um, and so our philosophy department has uh, about as many majors as we've ever had in the past, uh, I think, 15 years or something. We've tripled our amount of majors. Um, and part of that's, I think, um, we can claim some credit for that. But I think some of that credit deserves to go to the general atmosphere of where people are recognizing that ethics is something, ethics and philosophy are things that need to be talked about, ethics in particular. Um, I don't know whether, you know, anybody would agree with me that sometimes there seems to be a paucity of ethical leadership uh, and that we don't have people articulating necessarily the sorts of uh, ethical values we would like to see our own children and ourselves embody. Um, but I think that people do see it uh, and they see it in business, they see it in politics, and as a result, they feel like there's something that needs to be shored, shored up in them uh, and in their education. And I think that uh, I think philosophy departments and not just ours have benefited a little bit from that. I'm, I'm going to end with this last question. There's so many people that want to ask questions um, of you, so we will go to those in just a minute. But, you know, when we hear as students that we're going to take a, a philosophy course and we think, well, that means I'm going to study Kant and I'm going to study a lot of, well, dead white men. Mm -hmm. um, and they're trying to figure out what relevance does that have to me? How do you approach those students and engage them in ways that make them understand that philosophy may be ancient, but it has very real current applications? 
Well, again, I think that um, starting with the problems and the puzzles um, is probably pedagogically the way that I uh, love to see. For example, if I have my students start out reading Khan uh, and then have them come into class expecting them to have gotten anything at all out of it, I've already lost. Um, it feels like the way to do it instead, I had a, uh, a mentor one time who, when I was struggling as a teacher, he basically said, just make them mad. <laughs> just, just, make it, just make them mad and the rest will come. And, you know, while that's a little bit over, overly simplistic, it's not totally wrong. Uh, if you can actually get their juices going and get them sort of fired up about something and then show that there's actually resources that a few of these, you know, people in history have brought to bear on these issues, um, their attention's grabbed before they are turned off by some of the um, more rickety cobweb parts of philosophy. Um, you know, the, a good enthusiastic discussion about something of contemporary relevance can blow out the cobwebs pretty quickly. That being said, I do think the philosophy um, and our department in particular will benefit from becoming more diverse and actually representing more of our population. And that's something that I think we're really working to do, um, you know, especially, you know, in the past several years, I think that um, we've tried to incorporate a whole lot more diverse voices into our curriculum, um, because I think that students do actually need to see themselves a little bit in philosophy in the way that just looking at Kant and Aristotle would do. Well, those of you that are listening today, um, I want to make sure that you understand that we're just barely grazing the surface of the material that he wrote in this chapter uh, in um, pushing the book, again, Ethics at the Heart of Higher Education. Um, Robert is indeed a, um, a great resource for this university. He's been a great partner in the, our work with the Ethics McGuire Ethics Center. And Robert, we just want to really thank you for joining us today and being a part of this discussion. Thank you, Rita. It's been a pleasure. Sound Ethics is a production of the Carrie M. McGuire Center for Ethics and Public Responsibility at Southern Methodist University. Thoughts, views, and opinions of Sound Ethics speakers do not necessarily represent the views of the McGuire Ethics Center or SMU. The McGuire Center supports student and faculty ethics-related education and activities, as well as outreach to community, private, and public institutions. Learn more by visiting us at smu.edu backslash ethics or finding us on social media at McGuire Ethics.